Authorized is on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash authorized pod if you want to support us. For $3 a month, you can help us buy these books. For $6 a month, we'll give you a shout-out on the podcast. And for even more money, you can demand that we read and discuss a certain novelization. Pretty cool. If we get enough listeners, we will start putting out bonus episodes, so tell your friends. Authorized.com. It's not authorized.com. What? Patreon.com slash authorized pod. Hey everyone, Overby here, just cutting in to say that I messed up the recording schedule. So, we do not have U.S. Marshals by Max Allen Collins this week, because we read the book, but we never recorded the episode. So instead, we are dropping a crumb that we've had in the can for a while, a really great crumb on The Starlight Barking by Dodie Smith, with the podcast Book Retorts. And it is really so much fun. I am excited for you to hear it. And then when we get U.S. Marshals recorded, uh, it'll pop up in your feed. I don't really think anybody pays attention to the schedule or needed this message, but I don't know. I guess I hope there's, like, one fanatical guy who's like, You deviated. What the hell? Welcome to Authorized Crumbs, a trail of succulent bits that entice but never ever nourish. You may feast upon our Starlight Barking episode, which you are currently listening to, or our Bloodshot bonus, or our Emoji movie, and say, delicious, may I have some more? And the answer is simply, not yet, sweet baby, not now. Crumbs are often junior novelizations, or tertiary tomes spinning off from novelizations, but now, for the first time, we're covering something that just simply doesn't fit our premise at all, not even a little, but boy, were we too curious to say no. Not even, I can't bend it. I've bent the premise <laughs> so completely, yeah, and been like, has... eh, it's, yeah. The, the most thin relation to a film you could possibly have. It's a book. It's just straight up <laughs> a book. <laughs> yeah, it's a sequel to another book which was made into a film, but this book was not made into anything close to a film, and there have been other mm-hmm. books purporting to be sequels to the same first film, but they're not this at all. So we just wanted to talk about it because, good gosh, you read an explanation of this book, and you're like, well, I have to read that. This is so- like peak <laughs> Wikipedia plot synopsis fiction. <laughs> <laughs> where you Where you read the plot synopsis and you're like, I suppose I must read this. Yeah, and I'm glad I did. So we are your hosts, a loose coalition of swishing enthusiasts. My name is Hannah Blackman, And I'm Andrew Overby. The Starlight Barking is a 1967 novel written by Dodie Smith. The sequel to her own 101 Dalmatians, The Starlight Barking trades out genres entirely, following the canine characters of the original book as they encounter a dog-specific supernatural event. When the humans and non-dog creatures of Great Britain fail to wake up one day, 
England's dogs must follow psychic clues and discover telekinetic and telepathic superpowers galore in order to get to the bottom of this otherworldly phenomenon. Our guest today, from the podcast Book Retorts, a podcast about sharing media that you're excited about with your buddies, Sam and Danielle. Sam and or Danielle, speak one at a time or at once. (laughs) How are you today? I'm doing great. Yeah, can't complain. Excited to be here with the starlight barking. Ancient's comment very much applying to today. Yes, (laughs) this is why I'm so excited to be here. Um, This book is, it's banana flakes. I can't describe it any other way. It's absolutely crazy. And if you come into it with any knowledge about 101 Dalmatians, either the cartoon or the book, I presume I have not read the book, I'll admit, uh, the original novel, but I assume it's pretty much like the like the movie largely but if you come in with any of those expectations you're going to be lost you know cast adrift in a sea of fantastical (laughs) weirdness and it's the one instance where knowing the source material the original book makes the sequel more confusing and the fact that it was penned by the same person is is really wild uh because it feels like a separate well uh, you know i think of everything in terms of movies even though i understand books aren't movies i get that i want that on the record (laughs) but it feels like one of those cases where an unrelated movie is trying to get made and they can't get it made so they instead force it to be highlander 2 which i believe (laughs) you guys have covered right oh we have there's mad highlander 2 energy coming off of the starlight barking (laughs) Just like we want to bring bring back characters from the first book technically, but force them into a completely different genre and essentially have it have almost nothing to do with the first book or its stakes or its reality. I'd also like to flag that Dodie Smith's third book, I Captured the Castle, is totally a medieval different. romance. Yeah, way another different. totally different thing. <laughs> Between dogs, right? No. <laughs> I mean, one would think, and yeah, no, it's like a 250, 300-page adult novel uh, set in a castle. So maybe this lady was just, like, the most interesting woman who ever lived. I admire that. She had big ideas, and she pursued them. I don't know. I wonder in a case like this where the characters are just going on a completely different adventure that has basically nothing to do with the original book... I wonder if it's just an author being so in love with the characters that they've made that they're persevering despite not having a cogent sequel idea. Maybe. If I had to speculate wildly, which I'm going to do, because why not? With no (laughs) evidence, no research I've done, but I hope I'm not skipping ahead. This book ends with a very strong anti-nuclear war message. Like, that is the purpose of this book is like, Nuclear war, bad, dogs, good. And I think that's a (laughs) message we can generally get behind as a species. But I think she might have been having this message. Like, I have this message. I want to get out to kids. I want to express to children that nuclear, nuclear war is bad and that we should avoid destroying ourselves. And what is the best medium by which to convey that message? Well, I already have this slate of beloved characters. I got a built-in audience here. So maybe I can just Mm -hmm. shoehorn in this message, which would have been fine, except she decided to go about doing that in the most 
circumspect and ludicrous way possible. I would like to say that I'll stop talking about this soon, but let's remember that Highlander 2 also suddenly is all about environmentalism and how like we need to we need to fend off global warming. And, it's like where did this come from? Well, and depending on which version you watch about aliens being punished to yeah. Earth as a penal colony, which actually would make a lot of sense, I think. <laughs> I'm here to talk about the Starlight Barking, but watching Highlander 2 is like the most formative experience I've had in 2022. So <laughs> it's just, it's front of mind. Okay, so Sam and Danielle, prior to covering this book on your own podcast, and remind me, because this is an episode of your show I didn't listen to. Because mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not going to be influenced by their brilliant thoughts. I'm going to have my own, my own. So... What, uh, which one of you presented this to the other, and what was your general feeling on, on the book the first go-around? So I had the privilege of sharing this book with Danielle. And such a privilege. Such a privilege. <laughs> and uh, I have not read it since, so I'm sorry to everyone today. I did not uh, do my due diligence and brush up on it. <laughs> but uh, my first impression was I already knew a little bit about how weird it was. Like, I'd read online a little bit about the Starlight Barking, and I knew that it was mm -hmm. off the rails. And I didn't realize quite how far it went. So I started reading, like, okay, I I'm going for this to get weird. And then it's like when you're sort of, like, going into the ocean and you're walking along and something just drops out from under you, like you've, you suddenly hit that <laughs> shelf. It's like that, like, suddenly, oh, they're swooshing and they're communicating psychically and there's a dog called Cadpig who's now prime minister of England in dog form and it's just suddenly like overwhelmed with insanity the detail i saw all over the internet about this book that really enticed me was that the dogs form their own government mm. and that's not the truest thing i've ever read <laughs> now that i've read the book <laughs> They, the dogs emulate the human government yes, right. to very bad effect like human governments. Much worse, though. They are unelected. They are only <laughs> in their positions as privilege of being the pets of the elected officials. So this isn't a dogmocracy, if you will. This is a dogalarchy. Dologarchy? I mean, if yeah. there's one thing I feel that I learned from, about dogs from reading The Starlight Barking, if we can take this as a true presentation of dogs, it's that they're very impressionable, and they love to follow a leader, and they just don't really think for themselves anyway. I mean, that's not So I'm untrue. not surprised that the dogs are like, yes, yes, prime minister, ha, 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 yes! Like, they just love it. They're just happy to be there. I do think there's a direct line from the dogs in the Starlight Barking to Brian from Family Guy. <laughs> it's like the same type of joke, which is like, I'm a sophisticated creature with my own thoughts, which you may not have assumed, knowing what you know of dogs. But also, for comedic effect, I'm very much a dog sometimes. <laughs> I have to ask Danielle, because, you know, I got your reaction live while we were recording that episode. But I'm curious, I'm assuming you've now read the book yourself. Yes, I did have the honor and privilege <laughs> of reading the book this week. And I re-listened to most of our two episodes just for kicks and giggles. And it's a book. It's a really boring book. I know we talked yeah. about that in the in the podcast, but a lot of stuff does not happen in that book. And then it's intermittently insane things that happen. And it's just like two paragraphs of insanity and then 
stuff about wandering the halls of, of parliament or whatever and looking at the art. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> like it's just a it's a it's a book I probably would not have read otherwise. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> it feels particularly British dry to hmm. me. So like when Roly Poly shows up at the end and they're like, Where have you been, you fat dog? And he's like, Oh, I went to Paris, no big deal. That's a huge deal, man. Huge deal. <laughs> And it's presented with that very sort of repressed, stoic, stiff upper lip, Britishy, like, oh, nothing happened, nothing fancy, just a jaunt to Paris. I mean, and to so be fair. many of the crazy things in this book are presented with that level of like nonchalance. When um, it could use, I think, a little more weight and stakes. I don't know because if I found myself the ability to fly at great speed, then traveling to Paris would no longer be such a big deal. Like, like a, you know, when we got cars, going to the next village over was not suddenly a big journey like it was before travel. But you're absolutely right that they just sort of accept the newfound superpowers they have of swooshing, which is like hover dogs flying around, and psychic communication, <laughs> and they just like, yeah, we can do this now, and you're, I think that's where I get hung up on the why you're not reacting to this with more, you know, excitement right. or wonder or fear or anything. I totally agree. I also think there's a really frustrating dream logic to the book where every uh, extraordinary thing that happens, the immediate question pops up of why is this happening? And it's just answered by a completely uncurious <laughs> explanation of it's happening because we need it to happen. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which is dramatically inert. <laughs> yes, metaphysical. I mean, misses maybe the best representation in fiction of a person who just learned a word and is overusing it tirelessly. Uh, love misses. She's. I gotta say, misses kind of my hero and my, my favorite character in the book in in a way. Mine too. <laughs> there's there's one point where she says something like, "Isn't it just like so and so?" And Pongo goes, "Not really." Like, <laughs> there's that. something in their relationship that is very loving and very sweet, but he thinks she's pretty stupid. She's oh, intuitive, is, but she's dumb. She is. He is so condescending to her, and I don't know. Like this probably sounds like gibberish to everyone who listening who doesn't are we going to go through like some of these dog powers some of the plot are we just gonna no let's talk yeah, from totally. the beginning because we cannot assume yeah, okay. that people read this book. <laughs> we cannot it's unfair to the listener so the the basic premise of the book is that all these dogs wake up and then none of the humans have woken up and they soon discover both that everyone's humans have not woken up uh and that all non-dog animals are also asleep and so dogs are having a moment, and no one knows why. Like, I hate to interrupt already, because there was a no, question. No, go. It stopped me. Where do we draw the line on what is and isn't a dog here? Because wolves, foxes, uh, coyotes, like, these are questions I had that I didn't really think about too much. I'm like, it's, you know, a Jody Smith book, it's fun. But I just want to know, like, what is the, like, it feels very, uh, I don't want to say, like, racial in a way, but, like, you know, these are the dogs, and you are not a dog, even though you're a canine. Like, the- There's also a kind of unpleasant racial element within the dogs. Oh, I'm like, well, oh. we're Dalmatians. Yes. So, that a lot. Which really is um, <laughs> off-putting. Yeah, for so sure. it, it feels like there's, like, onion, like, an onion layers of racial connotations that are uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, they, they do say when they go to the zoo, Missus is very concerned that the wolves will be awake, but they're not, so that's right. fine. 
So I guess it's just what we would consider a domesticated dog. And honorary dog. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually. It's, it feels arbitrary is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> and I agree. And I, I think our main opinion in, on this book throughout the whole episode should be, we should be one of those podcasts that's like, you couldn't make this today. <laughs> People wouldn't be having it. <laughs> but I agree. It's weird. And it feels racial. I kept trying to imagine like, okay, you're Disney in the late 60s, early 70s. 101 Dalmatians is a big hit, I assume. And you're like, should we make 102 Dalmatians, the starlight barking? And I kept trying to think like, I think this could work. I could get into this. And then the dog star shows up, not to skip too far ahead. But that's when I was like, you couldn't make this into an animated children's film, period. Disagree. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Hannah. At, like, at that moment, I was like, I want to see that. Like, when they're talking about all the dogs gathering Trafalgar Square and, you know, the statue and everything, and, like, they're sitting there and they're all contemplating and feeling their feelings. And they start, like, clapping, but, like, dog clapping and stuff. Like, that's – I want to see that anime. That's like, this is the point where I was like, oh, I no, want to see hear this. Ya. I agree that I want to see a thousand dogs in Trafalgar Square, a woofin, a howlin'. <laughs> what I have trouble with is that, like, the dramatic climax of this book is, like, seven dogs in a room being like, should we leave? I don't know, big question. Like, it's not dramatically <laughs> compelling. And then oh, every single dog is like, no. There's no conflict. Every no. dog agrees. Almost, even the dogs that are mistreated are like, we want to stay on Earth and continue to be mistreated. Oh, so That's... Weird. Good for us. It's so sad and strange. There's no tension there. I mean, and even in the first, whatever, 10 pages of this book, they talk about, oh, and Cruella DeVille chased us in her big black and white car. Scary, dramatically compelling, has stakes. This book has no stakes. This book has no trauma to it. I had a note that, that said the roly-poly thing at the end of the book where they think they've lost him for one page <laughs> is the is the most the thing most resembling a conflict in the entire story. Now, I, I'm just going to read a very short passage here from where yes. they're trying to wake the humans up. I think this kind of illustrates the point of it being uncinematic. So there, there's just a lot of talking about the humans sleeping, uh, and then at one point there, so it says. Page six. It's a quarter past ten, said Pongo, and goodness knows that's late enough. Why haven't Mr. and Mrs. Dearly, Dearly, awakened? I listen to this book. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. looks anxiously at the Dearlies. Do you think they're ill? Yeah, do you think they're ill? They look particularly well, and they're breathing beautifully, said Mrs. In, out, in, out, regular breathing, and Mrs. Dearly smiling. First of all, just a side note. They talk about the way people are breathing so much in this book. And it comes back with Cruella DeVille. They, mm -hmm. they talk about like seeing animals sleeping and they're like, the breathing was beautiful. And it kind of <laughs> borders on strange. But I think that, I mean, so much of the first 20 pages of this book is just them going, why aren't people waking up? I think the reason you can't make this into, the, into a movie is because if you make it into an animated movie where the dogs talk, all the dialogue is just them going, why can we do a magic thing? Because we can. <laughs> and then if you make it into a live action movie, it's incomprehensible. <laughs> well, certainly. Yeah. I mean, I, I want, Andrew, in between when we discussed Disney's 102 Dalmatians, the live action movie, when you hadn't seen the animated 101 Dalmatians... Have you now watched the animated 100... Oh, God damn it! <laughs> Someday. 
I think it would help inform the like the success how well 101 Dalmatians works as an animated movie with dogs who speak only to each other. Mm-hmm. Like I think it can be done, and Disney really did such a remarkable job with that movie of like the dogs are such good characters. They're so compelling as like protagonists. The way they speak to each other is like that beautiful moment in the '70s when Disney was like, I guess kids' movies like kids are adults. Kids can understand big vocabulary, right? Like the perfect little moment um, that I can kind of imagine a version of this that like could work up until there's no climax. Mm-hmm. I wish you would just watch it, Andrew. It's so good. I mean, I'll watch it at some point. My movie watching has slowed down a lot in the year of our Lord 2022. But <laughs> it's like 80 minutes. Mm. All right, I'm gonna have to play devil's advocate here because I'm just just for like a thought experiment. I think there's a way that this movie works, and it's not as uh, a, like a direct sequel to 101 Dalmatians. It's not like it has an adventure story. It's not because like you all agree, I agree with you all. Like you all said, there is no tension. There is no real plot to this book. It's a series of sort of disconnected, remarkable events that happen and then are explained in the most uh, confusing and uh, just insane way possible. I think this works more in a Fantasia type way where mm-hmm. it's, a story that is more about visuals and remarkable things happening and the plot is sort of shoved to the side. So like Danielle was saying, how most of the book is these long, boring paragraphs with these brief moments of insanity. If you took all those insane scenes and strung them together in a very artful way, it it didn't really make a lot of sense, but it could be like Memento. It could be like something just like, oh, this is a visual (laughs) experience. I like that idea. Like Ralph Bakshi should do that cartoon. (laughs) The visual of the swishing seems super fun. We'd love to see it. The tractor swishing seems fantastic. (laughs) Like when they go into Cruella's house and they find her clothes that clank. Like I want to see those. You're blowing through way too much, Hannah. These are (laughs) all spoilers. (laughs) Well, come. I mean, I want to talk about all of them in more depth. But I'm just saying, like these are visual elements that would be cool, and musical elements that like would work. But uh, Sam, you're totally right that like you just got to get rid of the plot. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You don't need it. Yeah, (laughs) just one magical day where dogs can do crazy shit, and then the day ends and the dogs go back to normal and the world wakes up. No, we still gotta have the star come down. (laughs) We gotta have that whole like weird like dream like sequence of a star coming and like all the dogs like being in a cult. But like we can trim (laughs) that down from a whole paragraph or from from whole pages to like a brief you know thirty or forty seconds of of weird imagery. I think it'd be good. Disney, call us. We're ready to make this happen. No, you're selling me on this. What it basically is is 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yeah, the whole thing, <laughs> the whole thing has stakes and plot, and you slowly build up to 20 minutes of complete nonsense. Yes, that people then will treat like is very poignant, but it's just a light show and doesn't <laughs> add anything to the movie. I mean, it worked for cats. I, I suppose so, although that that's maybe not comparable because it's just wall-to-wall light show. That's <laughs> but, like the light show as a movie. I mean, as a plotless movie, it, it seemed to uh, yes. draw a lot of uh, fun viewing. I found Cats kind of interminable, but I, I am incapable of true joy. So uh, <laughs> the beginning of the Starlight Barking, Cad Pig, which is one of the 101 Dalmatians, we, we later learn this essentially in flashback, w- visited the prime minister 
and was usually a very standoffish puppy, but was so uh, affectionate to the prime minister that the prime minister asked to keep her, and Mr. Dearly was like, sure, great, sounds good. I have so many dogs. Cadpig is a very <laughs> ambitious, precocious dog. It must be said. It must be said. She Classic went to the prime minister's house material. with the goal of becoming the prime minister's dog. Yes, and to be fair, the prime minister didn't just pick her because he liked her. She helped his poll numbers. Like, she was, she ran onto <laughs> stage with him, and he's like, oh, I got a bump on the ball. So it was a very, like, mutually parasitic relationship between the two. Definitely, definitely. It, the, she enters the story because they start to just hear her voice going... Hey, what's up? Are you are your humans also asleep, et cetera, et cetera? And they're going, what, how are we hearing you? You're you live with the prime minister or with the dearlies. And it's just casually introduced that there's this thing called the starlight barking, which is te- like telepathic dog talk. Well, you're missing the context of the twilight, twilight barking, yeah. <laughs> which is a normal bark thing that the dogs do. Or they bark, sort of like playing telephone with each other. Just no, I get that news. So it's not totally out of nowhere. That was in Disney's live action 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> I get that, and it was it was perplexing to see not having seen the animated one because <laughs> the whole movie stops down to show dogs barking for like eight minutes. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I get that. I'm talking about the leap to science fiction fantasy and the way every dog goes. Okay, we could communicate telepathically. No biggie. And this is the first of a gauntlet of abilities that these dogs find they have within about 10 pages, and no one really bats a dog eye at. They're having a weird day, you know? It's one of those days where that might as well happen, too, you know? At some point, <laughs> don't you, like, cap out on nonsense as a, even a human being where you're just kind of mm-hmm. like, whatever. Like, by the 12th thing, the dogs are probably like, I don't care. We can do it. Let's go. <laughs> Open some doors, whatever. I mean, at one point, the dogs are ready to do a murder. So they don't give a shit. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's my favorite part of the book. <laughs> that, yeah, the dogs can open gates and doors uh, and then the other ability, as we said, is the swoosh, which who discovers the swoosh? I'm trying to recall. Uh, Cadpig tells them about it, mm, I think. Right. And it's basically like a, a hover maneuver that the dogs can do to travel extremely fast. And then eventually there's the elevated swoosh or whatever they call it, which is just high swoosh. straight up flying. <laughs> yes. Yes. Mrs. Yes. invents that, I believe. Because she's the best. Yeah, I do love Mrs. I gotta Mrs. say. Mrs. learns the word metaphysical and is just hook, line, and sinker in the bag for all magic. <laughs> like, she, if someone said the word magic to her, she'd be like, that doesn't exist. That's crazy. But you say metaphysical to this dog, she's in. I, th- I think that's very dog-like, though. Because as Hannah was saying earlier, like, are these dogs with human-like intelligence? Or are they, like, dogs with dog-like tendencies and dog-like? Because... A dog is a very accepting creature. Like, you, you know, change a dog around you. Like, I was like, yeah, I'll roll with that. Like, they just trust humans implicitly. They'll follow along. They don't, like, question, you know, things really that much. So I feel like that is very dog-like for a dog. Like, oh, I can do this now? Cool. Let me just, like, you shave them or something. Oh, I'm shaved now. That's fine. Like, whatever. Like, they, they are very, <laughs> I don't want to say placid, but, like, they are not inquisitive in the way that, like, we would consider that to be inquisitive. But on the other hand, 
all the dolls in this book are showing us having a human-like intelligence in terms of their vocabulary, being able to read, all that kind of stuff. So it's that sort of, like, dichotomy that I think is what's so strange. Like, because, uh, like, they're dogs when it's convenient for them to be dogs, and they're, like, human smart when it's convenient for them to be human smart. And it's just a, mm-hmm. whatever the author needs at the moment. I really buy the level of dog intelligence of these dogs, that they spend a lot of time yep. with their human pets and have picked up their understanding of language and watching TV and like they're just civilized dogs who you know they see the humans as pets they think that they you know see themselves as equals and why not they can read and almost tell time (laughs) almost there is a fun part with Mrs. who is lovely where she's like you know I'm not perfect but at least I'm not obsessed with cleaning puppies like Perdita (laughs) (laughs) she has her own little snobbery that is so charming like there's all they're just like if they were just presented as dogs i think i'd find them boring but their little idiosyncrasies and like rudenesses are so charming i like them so much as someone who listened to the audiobook i have to say i just thought it was good (laughs) i i don't really have criticisms of this book as a sub four hour audiobook read by a pretty energetic narrator it just kind of slapped (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I had a blast reading this book. I laughed out loud. I was <laughs> just carried along by whatever the heck was happening, and I didn't know what it was. And uh, it surprised me consistently. I think it would be challenging. Uh, I, I agree. I think it's a lot of fun, but I think it would be challenging to keep a young child maybe engaged through some of the more <laughs> political or esoteric parts of it. And I think, uh, Andrew, what you were saying about having an engaged author or an engaged reader who can you know, maybe do some voices, keep entertaining, would, would help a lot, especially if you can sort of like put it on in the background while you're doing something else so it's not like you're sitting there bored. I think that's, a, that's like the perfect way to, to consume this book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was it, it paired well with walking around in the summertime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, don't know if, I don't know if sitting looking at it would have been the same, but who's to say? Uh, my favorite thing about their superpowers is that when... Like, when they discover that doors open for them, they start doing that a lot. And then there's a part of the book where a door opens for them because they want to look someplace. And then they can't get another door open. And they're, and they're like, uh, why did this happen? Why did it let us into a room if we then can't continue? And one dog goes, uh, it let us in because we needed to know that we didn't need to know. <laughs> These dogs. Just clever writing. No joke. <laughs> Loved it. That's the instance of because we needed it that worked for me. And most of the rest of them feel kind of lazy, like you were saying before. Mm-hmm. But that one feels like motivated by character. It also feels like a very human thing in the sense of like, oh, we can rationalize any occurrence as having some deeper meaning if we try hard enough. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, they have a lot of reason to believe that things have deeper meaning. (laughs) We'll get to that. (laughs) They're having a meaningful day. Uh, they They are being told by the entire world that they are the protagonists of this story. Well, this is the part that's weirdest to me. Because nobody assigned Pongo the leadership role but himself. Like, and Cad Pig. And, well, Cad Pig, but also, like, this goes back to sort of the, the ethnocentrism of it. Like, she's the Prime Minister of England, right? Or, I guess, Great Britain. Why does any other dog in any other country, 
who was also maybe like let's say the, the president's dog or you know, you know the the you know, uh, the the Russian dogs. So why do they care that oh Cadpig's the world leader now because they're the British one, so therefore British is the leader of the world. Like that feels very imperialist and uh, like they just sort of assume that mantle, even though nobody is like, oh yeah, you're the leader now, Pongo and Cadpig because of the of the entire world. Uh, no one says that. They just sort of like assume because they're British, they are. <laughs> Their Dalmatians are chosen by Sirius the dog star. They're I kind of, I wish spoilers. Oh my god! <laughs> like so, the the book does make a point of saying like we're talking to European dogs. We're trying to reach America, and I wish it just wouldn't do that. I wish it just pretended this was an England only situation, and the dogs were not concerned about the rest of the world because it would relieve a lot of that weird stuff that you're talking about, Sam. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't feel like there's any reason to be like. What are the Swiss dogs saying? Who knows? See, kind of. I kind of love that because I want more. I want to <laughs> see like a dog UN council. And I just want to have like the entire, I want to see dogs squabbling over like, oh, who put you in charge of deciding if we go to space or not? Spoilers. Turns out all the dogs agree though. Not a single naysayer. Just in case we end up missing this, my favorite thing about the dog government, speaking of dog UN, is that they hold a meeting and they have no idea what to do in the meeting and so they just pass a vote of confidence on themselves. <laughs> I also want to flag that that dog government is has girl dogs in it. It is led by a girl dog. That is not a misogynist dog government. No, it's not it's not representative of 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 reality. It's nice. That's all. Good for the dogs. they're better than humans apparently (laughs) yeah in many ways and this book makes that clear (laughs) Mm -hmm. so it's decided that all of the dogs should meet up and on the journey to meeting up they need to nip in the bud the theory that villain Cruella de Vil is behind this as well as the events of the first film possibly the strangest part of the book, in my opinion. So they're talking about going to visit Cruella. But Cruella will just be asleep, like all humans, said Pongo. You forget, Cruella's not human. We were never sure of that, said Pongo. But it was true that they had once believed that Cruella might be some kind of devil. Perhaps the mysterious sleeping wouldn't affect devils. Still, he told Mrs. Firmly, Anyway, only dogs are awake, and she's certainly not a dog. Now, they do end up going to visit her, but I just want to say, I kind of thought the book was actually going in that direction. (laughs) And it was going to make a case for Cruella DeVille being an otherworldly being. And I love that they have had hypotheses about what she is. That the dogs got together and were like, I think she's not human. I think she's, you know... Kind of a fun little glimpse into their mythology. When Sam was recapping this to me, I was convinced that either Cruella and the Dog Star were uniting forces and like trying to take over or something, or they were diametrically opposite, and she was like a demon, and the Dog Star was trying to save them. <laughs> I just thought somehow yeah. that was there's something at play. Um, and then Sam decided that apparently Cruella Deville was actually put in there for fan service, and that was the only reason she existed in the entire book. I can't think of another reason to have her in there. Just to check <clears throat> in. I think it's weird, weirdly realistic. It's like the the 
the dogs would suspect the person who was the most evil to them. And I like it, but I'm surprised that a book goes out of its way to just say, this doesn't serve the story at all, but they just need to, they just need to, you know, check on this. I have two issues with that part of the book. Well, I have many issues, but two that I'm going to talk about at the moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> first, it is perhaps the biggest anticlimax in the book where they spend so much time sneaking into Corella's house. The chapters of this book are them checking on Corella only for it to go absolutely nowhere. Like, they see she's asleep, mm-hmm. they peace out, and they're done. Like, they don't even have, like, they do briefly contemplate murdering her, which is excellent, <laughs> but... That even that doesn't go anywhere. And the other issue is we already know that some human, at least a human, is awake, which is that little boy who can talk he's to... He's an do- honorary dog. Yeah, because he's an honorary dog, declared by whom? He <laughs> the dogs. <laughs> which dog? Anyway, he apparently is awake. So at that point, I'd be like more suspicious of like Pongo's just being like, oh, she's not a dog. Like, well, you know, other non-dog things are awake. So let's not be too hasty here in our assumptions. Sam, you got to buy into the world of this book. They make it very clear that the two cats and the little boy are awake (laughs) because they have been dubbed honorary dogs. End of story. (laughs) That's why. Geez, Sam, geez. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's not my nature. I must, I must overanalyze and dissect the rules of this world. If you had been named an honorary dog, you'd probably be allowed to be awake. But you weren't, so you didn't. My question is... you missed is, a whole day in 1967. If this happened, like, I don't know, 15 years later, 20, that kid was an adult or something, would he still be dubbed an honorary dog, and would he still wake up? And then, like, what is his day like as, like, a, a 15-year-old awake in a world of dogs? Like, that seems crazy. I mean, I think the answer is no, is that probably he would grow out of being an honorary dog when he becomes more like a person and less like a dog. Mm. Because they do say that part of what makes Tommy special is he kind of speaks dog language because he's like a baby. Mm -hmm. That's true. He's like three, you know. So I declare that the answer to your question. (laughs) Children are like dogs. You heard it here first. (laughs) You put them on a leash. You walk them around. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Whatever. People do put their kids on leashes. I know. Yeah. It's part of the joke, Andrew. Fuck. I had to ask you, when you were reading this, <laughs> uh, and you got to the Corral de Villepot to return back to there, how did you feel like, did you think, when I told you about Corral de Ville being utterly irrelevant and having metal clothes for whatever reason, and you're like, oh, this is just Sam's summary, and then you read yourself, how, what was your reaction to that chapter? That you didn't lie. <laughs> <laughs> that it was as undramatic as you said it was because I, I don't know maybe I thought you undersold it or something and I still really believe that the cats should have jumped on her or something just to make sure she wasn't faking it because I really I really feel like they didn't do due diligence she could have been evil and pretending to be asleep knowing that everybody else was asleep she could have been a demon there could be an entire undeveloped plot line that we don't know about if only it's also a very atmospheric part of the book. It's a very dark part of the story. Literally in the story, it's very dark, and they, they open the curtain with their psychic powers to like kind of see a little bit better. But the rest of the book feels very like light and, and sunny, and that part of the book is very dark, which is well, an interesting tonal shift, I think. It's interesting. I, I think some of the best actual writing is in that section of the book, like in terms of, as you mentioned, description and imagery. And it feels... 
I don't want to say wasted, but kind of maybe squandered on just a little piece of atmosphere that is not relevant to any other part of the book. Can someone explain to me the clothes that clank? Yeah, can, can I, I, I want that too, but <laughs> I, I'm going to read a little bit of this chapter first because as Sam says, it's maybe the best written part of the book and it gives a, a, a lot of interesting Cruella info. So they've snuck into her home. They come and find her in her bed. <clears throat> Cruella DeVille lay asleep in the other bed. There was nothing funny about her, though she did not, in sleep, look as frightening as when Pongo and Mrs. had seen her last. That Christmas Eve when she had chased them and all the puppies in her enormous black and white car. But she did not look pleasant and peaceful, as the sleeping dearlies did. Her mouth was grim, her long nose seemed more pointed than ever, and she was frowning heavily. Perhaps she looked less frightening only because her eyes were closed, those black eyes with a streak of red in them. Even the memory of them made Mrs. shudder. First time I've seen a dame with black and white hair, said the Staffordshire. Lucky called uh, something, not important. Uh, the, but the white cat got there first and said, Half her hair turned green with shock after we destroyed her furs. I suppose she's had it dyed. Uh, da, 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 da. And then where do we get to the clothes that clank? Oh, here we go. Funny kind of sheets she's got now. They look like tin. They'll be plastic, said the white cat. When we drove Mr. DeVille out of business as a furrier, he went in for making plastic raincoats. Perhaps there are some of them about. She flexed her claws hopefully and looked around the dimly lit room. Some of the dogs were already exploring it, and suddenly, mingling with Mr. DeVille's snores, there came a noise like metal hitting metal. Mrs. cried, Pongo, that factory we saw this morning. Clothes that clank. Pongo then saw that there were racks of plastic coats, just as there, as there had once been racks of furs. But it must be some new kind of plastic. No ordinary plastic raincoat could make the noise these coats made. As the curious dogs examined them, clank, clank, the noise got louder and louder. If the DeVilles had been wakeable, it would certainly have wakened them. Okay, Tommy lifts a, a coat from the rack and holds it in front of a window. It seems to be made, made of shining <clears throat> black tin. And he says it's too heavy to hold. I agree with Danielle. What the heck is going on? <laughs> High fashion. Cruella DeVille is a fashion genius. Yeah, She is an inventor. <laughs> she is a visionary. That's what's happening. High she says, oh, fashion. I can't do fur? Okay, I'm doing something you've never seen before. Metal or hard plastic clothes and coats. It gives them a very interesting structure and shape. And a new element of fashion, sound, hasn't been done before. Cool. Good for her. <laughs> who's wearing these off the runway? Like, who's wearing them to their office job I wish I could. I wish I could buy this exact coat in the illustration. It is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it is so chic and cool and weird. Look, say what you want about Cruella DeVille, but she is an amazing designer. And she does have creativity. I mean... Yes, making clothes out Dalmatians is abhorrent, but you gotta admit, she'd make some damn good-looking Dalmatian clothes if she was given that opportunity. Mm -hmm. So, asked and answered. The clothes that clank factory is really what gets me. This isn't, as Danielle says, this isn't just something that is going up in fashion shows. It's, it's something that is being mass-produced for people. 
The only thing that surprises me about that is that Cruella DeVille, who I have to assume went to prison for attempting to mass murder puppies and people alike, did she didn't then uh-huh. was chased she out didn't. of England. <laughs> she didn't go to jail at all? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. <laughs> okay, well, they, they say that she left England in this book and then returned. Yeah. I guess if I saw in the news that a woman who is well-known in the fashion sphere, like, ran her car off a ditch because she was trying to run down some puppies, I maybe wouldn't buy her clothes. So unless none of this was ever published in the news, I mean, and going off of the Disney movie, which is all I have of the original 101 Dalmatians, feels like it would be in the news. And if some guy wrote a song about me, which is not Mr. Dearly's job (laughs) in this book, so I guess she lucked out. I have a speculation. Actually, I have a rationalization of what those clothes are. This book, again, is, is very anti-nuclear war. I think she was commissioned. Like, she got a defense contract. You know, this is like, you know, the insider <laughs> dealing to make clothes that are radiation resistant. So, like, fallout clothes. These are, like, lead-lined or otherwise metallic clothing to help survive uh, a nuclear apocalypse for military people or... Uh, high-ranking official. So that's what I'm going to put out there as my explanation is this is some kind of, you know, sweet defense contract. Like, she sold a bridge to the government type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that that, that makes sense. It is funny that we keep saying that it's an anti-nuclear war book <laughs> and we're just not explaining it to the listener. But we'll get there. Well, the book doesn't explain <laughs> it until the very end either, so we're only trying to keep the listener in the same mode as they would be while reading the book. <laughs> Explain suggests that the threat is even present. The book doesn't introduce it until the very end. Fair enough. Yeah, it's not like the dogs wake up most mornings concerned about the threat of nuclear war. Well, they're dogs. They don't know anything about it. Ah, oh, they watch television. They watch the news. <laughs> they rule out Cruella DeVille. Where do we go from there? They go back to Downing Street and... They're all like, oh, Cadpig, we wish you could be on TV. It brings us all such comfort. And Pongo's like, well, why not? Let's turn on the TV and see what happens. <laughs> and what happens is the dog star shows up and talks to them. And basically <laughs> you gives say them a that bunch like it's very... normal. Like, they turn on the, the TV dog and there's a dog star on the TV. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a bright light that forms into a star <laughs> and it explains, I am Sirius, the dog star. I'm not a dog. I'm not a space dog. I'm a literal star. And I love you. <laughs> I love all dogs. That reveal, I think, is later. What happens is that the TV is like, I am a mysterious force in charge of what is happening. Gather all dogs in Trafalgar Square. It's also funny how <laughs> detailed it gets, where it's like, gather all dogs in Trafalgar Square. Unless you live far away, then go to your town hall. And But if you're not in a town, just go out into a field. <laughs> so many little uh, so many little addendums, caveats. What I hate about this sequence, I mean, you're right. It, they, they don't identify, it doesn't identify itself as the dog star right away. I hate about this sequence is the dogs will think to themselves like, oh, that sounds very scary. And the voice will go, it will be scary. I read your mind. And I fucking hate that. <laughs> it's kind of annoying as like a a writing move. Um, because again, it immediately undercuts any tension of like, what's going to happen? We don't know. The star immediately is like, I understand your fears. And let me tell you, it's going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, I like the observation from, I want to say it's Mrs. 
that uh, the clock striking noon is very different emotionally from the clock striking midnight. She, she has that passage where she's basically saying, it's the same number of bongs, but uh, it's scarier at midnight. So much emptier. It sounds like, yeah, that's I think relatable. that's the moment that Pongo is like, no, they're the same. <laughs> I don't know. I, I related hard to that. Sam are and I we, had that conversation in our at our show where I, I said, oh, I totally understand what she's talking about. And Sam's like, that's ridiculous. So apparently. Danielle and Andrew versus Hannah and Sam. So that's that's where the lines. Uh, I thought we were just emulating Mrs. and Pongo's no. relationship. It was it was a good time. I think that the chimes at midnight are frightening. I'm with Mrs. Oh, great. Yeah. Great, great, great. I so think it's, it's funny that Sam. Pongo is I, this like, has to okay, be a fight. woman. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I, 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 I mean, <laughs> I don't disagree with that at all, but it is much funnier to be, I think, like, I just love Pongo's snark dismissiveness and, like, self-aggrandizing. Like, he thinks he's, like, the hottest dog on the planet, and this <laughs> book does nothing to really disabuse him of that notion <laughs> because it makes right. him in charge. You know, I love Pongo. There's a couple of moments where someone says a thing to him and he does that classic man thing where he's like, yep, mm-hmm, and then thinks to himself, I got to look that up. Like, he has a couple of moments where right. he's like, yeah, I agree. I just I think, think it's hilarious. I don't know what that means. How, like, he's so <laughs> condescending to Mrs. and she's perhaps the most relatable person and maybe one of the, like, the yeah. people who thinks the best, like, has the most rational thoughts about most of the situations here. And yet he's like constantly like, oh, you don't really get it. Or, or you're just being emotional. I'm like, oh, that's you know, I, terrible. I love it. It's so I just funny. recently went to see Downton Abbey 2, colon, A New Era. And I was just like, <laughs> Pongo and Mrs. are just Hugh Bonneville and Mrs. <laughs> Downton Abbey, who, that wonderful actress whose name I don't remember. But like Lord and Lady Grantham, I was just like, this is the quintessential British couple. It's kind of a blowhard guy. Who's like, I definitely know this. And a really smart woman who's just sort of like a little daffy once in a while and then has to step up and be like, let me emotionally explain to you what's happening to you. (laughs) 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 It just felt like so like this is um, cozy British entertainment. And this is like a version of that that felt uh, good. (laughs) I don't know. I can't be mad at Pongo for being kind of condescending because I'm just like, he's just Paddington's dad. I get it. You know? (laughs) The dog star <laughs> reveals I've itself. I killed the conversation with too no, much Hugh Bonneville talk. No, you killed because we were all, I mean, I was at least contemplating what you were saying. Like, yeah, that <laughs> feels so true. And now I'm going to watch old British TV and, and experience that warmth. <laughs> That's kind of you to say. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the As Hannah cr- it crassly, cravenly gave away, the, the, the villain behind all of this is Sirius the dog star. When all the dogs go into the square, Sirius reveals himself and his motivation for everything that's happening is bananas. His motivation... Go he's ahead. He's lonely. Okay, yes. He's lonely. He li- He's a dog who lives in space. Well, he, he, not he's a not dog. a dog. He's a star. Uh... Do you know that? There's no proof to the contrary. <laughs> yeah, can it be both? <laughs> There's no rule against a dog playing basketball. (laughs) There's no rule. Yeah, exactly. There's no rule against a dog being a star. (laughs) I I believe he explicitly says there's a planet that they will live on him or in him or near him. And it's all very creepy. It reminds me a lot of like 
internet stalkers who are like, oh, I, I'm very uh-huh. lonely, and I've been watching you. Like, I've been watching your Facebook or Instagram or whatever. I've been, I've been tracking your movements, and you seem really cool. I think we'd be really cool together. Let's go hang out. <laughs> I know where you live. It's fine. You can move in tomorrow. My mom already likes right. you. I told her about you. Let's just get this going. No, that's so true. It feels It feels like the one person has a history with the relationship and the other person is learning there's a relationship. Yeah. It's creepy. <laughs> the 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 thing about Sirius is that he kneecaps his own pitch so much mm. where he's like, "Okay, here's the deal. I'm very lonely." You guys live on Earth. I've thought you're so cool for so long, but I wasn't going to interfere because that wouldn't be fair. You have your own lives. You have your own humans. Uh, Except there's the vague threat of nuclear war happening someday that everyone's always talking about. And I've decided that I need to step in to save you from that. But then even he goes, but you know what? That might just be me being lonely. (laughs) I don't know. It might not be that big of a deal. I appreciate his honesty, though. Like, he's at least honest about, like, hey, I really am lonely, and there's a threat of nuclear war. It's not guaranteed, and I'm biased, obviously, because I'm lonely, and I think it's more than likely, but you'll need to make your own threat assessment, which I think is probably the most, like, the best light he has at the moment. Like, the rest of the part, like I say, I feel he's very creepy and stalkerish, but that was the one part, uh-huh. like, okay, that was the right way to present it as a fair choice. I don't understand why it has to be all or none. That's that what feels I really unfair. <laughs> Cuz some dogs would certainly be happier on a dog star. But many dogs wouldn't. Like I don't understand the ultimatum. It seems uh, cruel. I could not agree more. Uh and, and I know Danielle like we discussed this in our episode, but The fact that he can't just say, oh, let me take all these shelter dogs or all the dogs that are being abused or all the dogs who just want to come and hang out with me. Like, you would still be less lonely. It feels like he wants to have – I don't know if you remember the episode of Futurama where they crash land on the planet of the collector who collects all the Star Trek stuff. And they want to have, like, the complete collection. Like, it's not about being lonely and wanting company. It's like, oh, I get to have all the dogs – and I'm the only one, and now all their love is mine. Like, I can't share it. It's about being the one who has the complete collection of dogs. Yeah, it's very sinister. I don't, I don't like Sirius. Yeah. The question of should they go, like, no. My answer no. would be hell no. I don't trust this guy. And the dogs very much are like, uh, first of all, we don't trust him. I love that the shelter dogs are like, we don't want a thousand of us with one owner. We all want our own owner who loves us. Are you kidding? Right. This is not the amount of love that we want to receive. Sweet little this, pups. This book mm. is very Toy Stories 2 and 3. In in its like constant uh, addressing of the idea of like, I love my owner and I want to have a very specific experience with my owner. Look, I have cats. They are my pets. As the dogs see humans as pets. I wouldn't just swap my cat out for any other fucking cat. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. Are you? Are, is are any of you watching uh, the Ultimatum on? Uh, I believe it's Netflix. It's just a terrible reality show I've been watching, and uh, it, at least this current season is subtitled. It's the Ultimatum: Marry or Move Out. Sign and me everyone, up. Like has to decide. <laughs> You've convinced and, me. And my friend and I keep joking about what future seasons of the Ultimatum will be subtitled. And so, like, we'll be like, the ultimatum, like, uh, 
uh, baby or boulonnaise, you know, like it's just like it's whatever, you know, boulonnaise. pick one or the other. Uh, you know that, and and that one I think is particularly good because it seems like a joke, but also the implicit meaning is that if you choose bolognese, you you can't have a baby, or so vice it's like versa. crazy high stakes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. No more um, bolognese ever. Well, you have a baby, but I love the idea of sauce is off the table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was wondering exactly. if the baby became the bolognese, and that oh, was no. all. Oh, oh, yeah, no. no! I was like, "That's a terrible decision." Who are you, serious? <laughs> what if it's a decision of which one you're giving birth to? Bolognese. It's like anyway. a liquid. <laughs> Sam makes anyway. a good point. <laughs> My. Uh, <laughs> My point is that uh, I would watch the season that is uh, the ultimatum uh, dog star or nuclear holocaust. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I at the end, to skip to the literal very, very end of the book, Pongo does muse to himself, maybe someday we'll be ready to join you, but not today. Like, to, I don't feel like Sirius leaves the door open at all. To, like, I'll be back. I'll see you in 100 years. Like, Pongo's being very hopeful with that. I'm just still baffled by Sirius's intractability because this star seems to have virtually unlimited power. It can control time and creatures and can move dogs across vast distances by swishing them through space and all sorts of other weird stuff. I don't understand why it can't be like a dog guardian angel where it swoops in when right. dogs are in danger or being abused and whisks them away to its dog-topia on wherever planet that starts itself. It was very unclear if the Dutch were going to try to live on the star, which is a whole other series of problems. <laughs> Sam, I think you really hit the nail on the head with the, the stalker thing, because it feels like the whole book, The Starlight Barking, proves that he does have an actionable relationship with planet Earth and that he could be a presence in some way. There's no lip service paid to, it's taking me a great effort to reach out, this is a one-time thing, this is the one ask I get, come live with me. He's basically going, we have a relationship, I'm, I'm, I'm exercising that relationship right now, and I really want to take it to the next level. Which, and it's, all it's or weird nothing. stakes. It's like, just hang out with us. I don't know, visit. Well, it's also like, <laughs> if I can't have all of you to myself, none of it. That's the only, that's all I need. It's either all or nothing. There's no like, which feels very possessive. Like, you have like an abusive relationship mm -hmm. with a person like being very controlled. Like, oh, you can't go hang out with those other guys or whatever because, you know, I'm the only guy you should be talking to or the only girl you should be talking to mm -hmm. or whatever. Like, it feels bad in that way. He's super manipulative on top of all of that. Like when he shows himself, he makes them feel wonderful bliss, then plunges them into terrifying darkness. Oh, let's says, talk about well, that. You needed both to really Basically think turns it over. all the light off on Earth. Yeah, scares the crap out of all these Just dogs. Just to make and them then go, says, yeah. You want to be scared forever or you want to be happy forever with me? Which is bad. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot support that kind of uh, treatment. Hannah, that's such a great point. I, I did think when he makes the speech about having you liked swishing around and having you liked being telepathic, you know, what if that was forever? I thought, this is like putting drugs in someone's cereal and then going, yeah. 
Didn't you like that? <laughs> My favorite part of this book is when the Great Dane shows up and is like, everybody stop drinking the Kool-Aid. Cool it. I live with a professor. I know what's going on. You are being manipulated. All you dogs are the victims of mass hysteria. I laughed out loud. I love the Great Dane, who's just like, that guy's no good. We shouldn't go with him. Absolutely not. He shows up. He manipulates you like that. I knew all you city dogs would get swept up in it, but I know better. That guy rocks. He's my favorite. Tangent, and this, uh, I mean, yes to all of that, but if, <laughs> if the star is promising eternal bliss, like constant, never, like, don't you think you get bored of that after a few weeks? Like, that be, when your baseline is eternal bliss, like, you suddenly, everything becomes the same. There's no stimulation. At some point, Mrs. says that, I think. Yeah, I think, Good, yeah. smart Mrs. And you're totally right. Like, it's not a good deal. Right, like, but the it, whole... It's much better to have humans who take you for walks and rub your belly and... Right, because... But if you're in eternal you. bliss, do you know you're not... Like, do you know what you're right. missing? Bliss is a relative... Happiness a is a relative... <laughs> happiness is like a relative feeling. It's a feeling you feel relative to being unhappy. It's like, you know, oh, you can't have the light without the dark, and you can't have the dark without the light. Like, you know, if you have all mm-hmm. light... Like eventually you don't even have a concept of what it is anymore. You know, it's, it's becomes yeah. the norm. Here's this passage at the end yeah. where Mrs. says, I'm hungry. How nice. Now I can look forward to breakfast. Of course, I haven't minded going without food today. I haven't missed it. But I do believe I've missed missing it, which I think is your point, Yes, Sam. exactly right. So again, and I'll tell you something yes. else. I think there would be a catch about that nice bliss. <clears throat> After a while, you wouldn't notice it. See, Mrs. Like, Mrs. absolutely yeah. gets it. She's the best. Let, let's talk about the the hunger thing. Uh, it, it's early in the book. There's a similar line where uh, one of the characters goes, uh, "I wanted to, I wanted to eat that thing. Well, I wasn't hungry for it, but I could feel that I wanted to be hungry for it. Same sort of idea. And mm-hmm. then late in the book, sad as heck, when they decide not to go with the dog star. One of the dogs is like, much as I have enjoyed not being hungry today, a rarity for me. Yeah. I don't think I can go to the dog store. And I was like, oh, dogs are out there starving. Dogs be starving. Well, yeah. Those, when cruelty. those stray dogs show up, it is so unbelievably sad. They are hungry. They are mangy. They are so skinny. And they're like, even we would prefer to suffer on Earth at the chance of happiness. Then just have it handed to us. I call kind oh of BS God. on that. <laughs> I yes. Mean, there is a very nice detail when all the dogs are going home that all the dogs who have been on the street go with the shelter dogs to the shelter. They like sneak in with the, the other dogs so that they can be fed and cared for until they find owners, which I thought was nice. I mean, there's still nice. millions of other shelter dogs out yeah. in the world that probably yeah, didn't get yeah. that opportunity. You know, I, <laughs> I mean, and this is. I that... can only hope that. International dogs in shelters are as opening, you know, that they open their arms in the same way that English dogs did to welcome their homeless brethren into their shelter. For like a day, and then they're going to fill up. Like the point is, is that... Sam, open your heart to the possibility of improvement. I, my, my thing is, this, this whole idea of like noble poverty... Like if you're an aesthetic or whatever, and you want to go live like as, as a as a recluse or like a, a hermit, that's one thing. But like the idea that oh, our suffering ennobles us in some way, like is is I feel a way 
for us as people to be more comfortable with, you know, homelessness and starvation and like, no, it's better if they, you know, even if they don't like have to earn it anyway, giving people the means to get themselves out of a precarious situation, getting those dogs off the street, for instance, and getting them like regular kibble is still way better than like, I, I don't know of anyone who would say I choose to be, I choose more suffering of a, 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 as opposed to I guaranteed agree with you. I agree stability. with you. I don't think that's what the shelter dogs are really saying. It's not like they're like, we want to continue to be unhappy. You know, they just want... No, they're saying that they, they want, want to be unhappy. It's like to... the lottery. Like I said, I'd rather continue being poor and buying, you know, lottery tickets for the chance of being happy and wealthy. And I'm like, no, I would take like, I'd rather get a, you know, a steady job or, or even like a steady, you know, income of some, like a, a minimum income that gets me... Uh, the food I need without having to suffer and with a, with a small chance of I think, success. I think trying to apply the dog situation to a human homelessness situation when dogs are not affected by capitalism in the same way that humans are. You know, I, I think that's the metaphor, right? Like, I don't think you're wrong. But I also think it's like, I think these shelter dogs have a wonderful idea about like, for us being just like loved by something that doesn't know us is not as important to us than being loved individually for who we are by someone who's special to us. I don't disagree with that. And I think that's lovely. Yes, I don't You know disagree. that if it's a question of like love and care, they really they believe they're going to get it on earth and they would prefer that and they want the chance to have something real as opposed to something that they feel would be shallow or false. I mean, I don't necessarily disagree with that notion, but I think We don't that- have we don't have to fight about it. <laughs> No, no, I think it's, I'm extremely invested in this. Yeah, Keep no, I going. think this is very, like, these are the, I love these kind of conversations. Like, these are the things that, like, this ridiculous book about flying dogs has started us on this weird conversation about the nature of hope and the, the hope trap that people can fall into where they prolong their suffering for the hope of a bigger payoff later or something. I don't know. Like, I don't know what the right answer is. I just think it's a very interesting concept that these dogs are like, oh, I think that it is better for me to suffer for the chant of something good later rather than get something less like it's like the the letting the perfect be the enemy of the good like maybe the dog star isn't going to be as perfect a love as whatever but idolizing some hypothetical future at the expense of your present and what may not actually ever come about seems i don't know not like I the mean, best if we're decision. talking about it as hunger i agree with you if we're talking about it as love i don't agree with See, you I, I like do to... you believe in settling I, I mean, I believe that, like, the notion of, like, soulmate or true love, that you have to wait until you find the exact right person. You'll know instantly, like, your know, Disney movie, and you'll fall in love. Like, people are people. Like, you're not going to find anyone on this planet who's perfect. And it's important to not necessarily find someone who's perfect, but to find someone who is perfect for you in the sense that you can accept their flaws and everything like exactly. that. But that doesn't mean that, like, oh, this person isn't good. I shouldn't even, like, consider them. But you don't want to marry somebody who isn't, who doesn't make you feel the right way. Right, but like we did that for a million years. Yeah, but and these it dogs sucks. don't marry serious. They're going to starve to death. Like they're going to shelters and maybe be put well, down. <laughs> like this is the thing well, I'm getting just, at. Just, just, just to cut in here. Yeah. Uh, with a couple thoughts. First of all, uh, the serious thing. It's it's a little bit of a false binary because sure. we don't actually know what serious offers. That's a fair point. Come to paradise in space where you'll be ruled and possibly live on a star. Or I was on like, me. okay, 
What's that? Or Daniel? on Sirius. You might be living on Sirius. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And it's like, you know, it it sounds good, but we they don't actually have the two things to compare. So that's my one point for, you know, against Sam. But then but th- then agreeing with Sam, I do think that the book itself is narrow-minded in that it's primarily concerned with the perspective of its main characters. And it throws in all this extra stuff like we're talking about, like dogs that are starving, dogs that are impoverished, and it doesn't really try to deal with it that much. I mean, just looking at the last page of the book, which Hannah already referenced, the page where Pongo's like, hey, dog star, maybe I'll catch you on the flip side. Uh, it, it The book ends with, all was well, Pongo told himself, gazing at the rising sun. Mr. Dearly, when walking around the garden under the stairs, had said that Sirius, the dog star, rose with the sun, though one couldn't see stars in the daylight. Was Sirius there now, and could he still read the minds of dogs? Just in case, Pongo sent him a message. Perhaps one day, Sirius, we shall be ready to join you and accept bliss. But not yet. You see, we do have quite a lot of bliss already. So... Here's the problem. It's a nice ending. Hannah's melting in front of us. Yeah. She's that melty smiley face emoji that just rolled out. Um, <laughs> but this book it does end on a note of aren't the things we have so wonderful from the perspective of a cushy dog life. <laughs> and it doesn't really contend with the fact, I agree, Sam, that this choice was made for all of dogdom and doghood. Here's the deal. Here's my counterpoint. <laughs> I, I agree. This. Pongo obviously has a very cushy life. When we were talking about like, well, isn't wouldn't too much bliss eventually feel like no bliss? Mm-hmm. Like this concept of like, we have quite a lot of bliss already. Is that like finding these moments of absolute happiness in a life that is otherwise fine highlights them. It makes life worth living. These beautiful moments in the sun, the people you love, you know, like riding in the car with your owner who loves you and stuff, whatever. Bachelors walking down the street together. Like, these are the things that make life valuable beyond the simplicity of survival. Like, survival itself is not why we continue to live, really, is it? It's for these moments of bliss. I think I agree with you about the philosophy you're saying. What I'm trying to get is I don't think the book puts that philosophy forward. I think the book does a bad job of necessarily conveying that perspective because every time I, sure, I hear yes. about this, what I think is like, oh, what a, like, like uh, Andrew was saying, what about the dogs who are being abused or in dog fighting rings or murdered or killed or like, you know, beaten? Uh, all these kind of things that are happening to dogs that are, that are terrible and saying that, well, their suffering is good because maybe down the road sometime they'll find happiness is not the same thing as saying that, you know, we should look for the happiness we can find in our own lives and not try to find like perfect happiness all the time. I think those are two different things. And I I totally agree with you that that's a good perspective to have. I just think that this book, it's clumsy, I think, in how it tries to handle those sorts of things. I think it's honestly a very sort of like mildly conservative mid-century British book. (laughs) And it has that sort, it has that very all of these questions of like, how do we take care of the poor is not the interest of the middle-class Brit in 1967. Right, exactly. And I, I think, like, I, I agree with you on those points. I do. And this is a children's book. I get that. It's a bit of fun. It's not supposed to be dissected for its deep philosophical and societal implications. 
And that's fine. So it's a pretty, you know, bog standard anti-war message. So, but on the other hand. I also want to make one additional point about the choosing for everybody thing. The dog star makes it very clear that if most of the dogs wanted to go, they would be allowed to go. Just because the English dogs give Pongo the right to choose for them. If deep in their hearts, they really did want to go, all the dogs would end up going. I don't think we should be rude to Pongo for being put in charge, even though at the end of the day, he just voices the general opinion. Is that what happens? Because, again, it's been a while since I read it. I was under the assumption that that was the initial idea, and then all the dogs said, well, let's give Pongo the choice, and that will be how we decide. I think the English dogs are dumb and don't have their own thoughts, and they don't (laughs) want the pressure of thinking for themselves, so they empower Pongo as a dog king to do the thinking for them. And even, but even Pongo is like, I need a bunch of other dogs to help me make this decision. I'm not an asshole. There's a lot of considerations here. But my, my impression, having read it, I don't know, maybe I am overly generous to this book, which seems very possible, was that it's, they all kind of have to agree. Every single dog in the entire world kind of has to agree. <laughs> I think that's fine. Like I said, I, I think I I just take a, a bit of joy in taking something as seemingly innocuous as a children's book about flying dogs and trying to find the deep societal implications that it is putting out there, even though it's absolutely not doing that in any serious way. <laughs> and it sparks these really interesting discussions. No, it's it definitely is. I, I think we can all agree that whatever the thematic underpinning of this book the dog star is menacing and scary. Oh, the evilest thing in the and in the doesn't book. Yeah. seem sketchy. like a buddy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. like even yep. the bliss it's offering. Even when I was arguing that it's bl- it's it's sort of false bliss is better than a life of suffering, doesn't exempt it from being just the creepiest star, either <laughs> in the sense of Hollywood or the cosmos that I've ever seen. It kind of has that vibe of like, okay, you're in a cult and the cult is like, do you want to go to heaven? You want to go to heaven, don't you? Kill yourself. Like, that's what he's asking the dogs to do. See, this is interesting. Yeah, truly. What if, oh, okay, this is great. I love that idea. I want to see if the dogs had accepted the offer, here's what I think would happen. Based on your, what you just said there is, all the dogs, they swoosh up to, to, to the dog star, but... It's their metaphysical forms. And all the humans wake up to see just a bunch of dog corpses everywhere on the planet. Oh, no. The dog star makes it very clear yeah, that humans on, would not remember dogs as a concept. I know, but it's He's more fun that way. You're to take away the collars and everything and make it all disappear. That's, that's Which I think is sad though. in a different way. Danielle, the, the, the collars thing is hilarious because the dog star is like, Humans won't remember you. You'll just all disappear. They'll forget the dogs are a thing. I can take care of it. And then a character goes, what about all our collars, our bowls, our accoutrement? And the dog star kind of just goes, I'll figure it out. Like, he doesn't really have an answer. He's sort of like, (laughs) like, I'll take care of that. I'll get rid of them, I guess. In the world where there are no dogs, A, do you think people wake up and are like, ah, yes, man's best friend my horse or do they feel that there's something missing that human beings need a companion and don't have one i don't know Hannah, i can't tell you sorry go ahead sam uh, i'm about mine's a tangent so you do your thing <laughs> oh, i was gonna say i don't know you know i i am not currently a pet owner i have had dogs and cats and mice and other various animal companions in my life and i think that humans 
would find pets. We, had to, like, we, we love to have those relationships with animals. I don't know necessarily we would find, you know, maybe foxes or other canids or <laughs> some other kind of animal would fill that void. I also want to point out that if Sirius has the ability to make all of humanity forget about dogs, it could solve the nuclear crisis just on its own, right? It could just be like, <laughs> That's hey, a great point. make all the people forget about nukes. Make all the dukes disappear, whatever. Have them all forget the launch codes, whatever. Like, he could solve the problem. <laughs> like, his solution is not preserve the world you live on and love. It says, let's just get you out of there and let it go to hell. <laughs> it would be an amazing ending if the dogs were like, but serious. What if you took the nukes and he was like, I shall do as you say. And then he beams all the nukes onto him and like explodes in space. <laughs> well, that only fuel a star. Yeah. Like a star would not be harmed yeah. by nukes. Oh, yeah. Good point. What if then you looked up into the sky and there was a star, but instead of being a twinkly circle, it was a dog. It was in the shape of a dog. We're just fully into Starlight Barking fanfic <laughs> at this point. I'm spinning <laughs> dreams here, baby. Like, I, I, was, I think um, but, this is such an interesting world that I think there are lots of, like, we talked talk about so many interesting concepts as this could have gone with. I think there's a lot of good fodder here for, for more world building. <laughs> when he shows himself to the other dogs, he looks like whatever breed the dog is that's looking at him. Right. He is all dogs to all dogs. Right. And it's also extremely creepy and, and it goes on that like what is the best breed of dog whatever dog you happen to be which is kind of nice i like that he shows himself as whatever dog is looking at him and then the great dane accuse him of accuses him of being thousand faced <laughs> not two-faced thousand faced which yeah. i mean accurate yeah and serious the dog star is like yep you're right i did that and it was dece- deceitful Yes, yeah, just for the listener, uh, this is a pretty good part. Uh, the dogs are receiving the no. For Sirius, who could read the thoughts of all dogs, already knew. From the heart of the star came the great voice saying, So the answer is no, and it comes not only from you, all you dogs here in London. I can hear it from all over the world, and I know now that there could not be any other answer. Of all creatures, dogs have li- lived closest to mankind. And they will never desert mankind. And though I do not think such devotion is deserved, I can admire it. And it is something in men's favor that they can inspire it and, in their way, return it. May you never regret your choice, O dogs of the world. The Great Dane said, Sir, I have misjudged you. (laughs) But you are quite right to call me 100-faced, said Sirius. And when I am back in space, in all my loneliness... I shall comfort myself by being every breed of dog there is. I shall imagine it, and imagination can be more real than reality, though that's something even I can't explain. And now we must be businesslike. That's the saddest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) The idea that he's off in space crying, transforming into one breed, then another breed, then another breed, then another breed to comfort himself. I can imagine like having little like action dog action figures, like maybe like figuring like, I'm the Great Dane, hello, I'm a little shit too. (laughs) He's transforming into each of them, and as each of them, he goes, we're so happy we decided to come. Oh, oh serious, we love you and we give you our loyalty. We'll never let you be alone for millions and millions <laughs> of years. Oh. What were you gonna say, Andrew? Oh, uh, way back? Yeah. 
It was so irrelevant. Yes. Say it anyway. I was just going to say that the device of having everyone forget about a thing (laughs) is currently being employed by the most popular movie series on planet Earth. And it's nonsensical and completely detracts from the main storyline. Not to, I'm not going to spoil whatever, but like the idea of like, oh, we made everyone on Earth forget about a thing. Listeners will probably know what I'm talking about. It's just fucking confusing because then characters talk about what happened in the past and you're like, but wasn't David there? What do you think about when you think about that memory? So I'm glad they didn't go that direction. Also, wanted to say way earlier in the episode that I am sold on a third 101 Dalmatians book that's Cruella v. Dogstar. Whoever <laughs> right? wins, we lose. It'd be so good. I think yeah. Cruella would win. I think it's possible. I think that it would be like, you could do one of those sequels a la whatever the sequel to, um, God, what's that What's that uh, uh, movie with about the Mexican cartels? And then they made the sequel that was uh-huh. only the villains. Sicario. Yeah, Sicario, Sicario 2. Sicario 2. Or, Things are worse now. <laughs> or Don't Breathe 2. I think you could do like a a sequel to 101 Dalmatians where you pit the villain, Cruella de Vil, against something so powerful that her victory over it is thrilling. <laughs> Cruella de Vil takes on God. That's what the live action Cruella is attempting to do. Yeah. I mean, we've gone in on that movie, but the live action Cruella does not allow her to be a villain. It's hard to be a villain when you're a villain because you tried to kill puppies. I don't know how you make that appealing as a it's Disney live action the most frustrating. movie. I mean, Danielle, I don't know if you've watched the live action Cruella, right? Like, they won't let her even be mean to a dog once. <laughs> it is so counterintuitive to like, well, we know where she ends up willing to murder hundreds of puppies. Mm-hmm. And the movie like won't let her, she like has her own pet dog that she loves and is kind to and won't let anything bad happen. It's like, it's nonsense. <laughs> Let her make metal clothes and kill dogs. The charitable read on it is that it's going to be this like Tony Soprano thing where they do 11 Cruella movies and she granularly <laughs> becomes extremely evil. But that's obviously not what's happening. They're just being cowardly. They're going to do something where they're like, she didn't actually want to kill the dogs. She wanted to save the dogs under the guise of killing the dogs. And I'll be like, boo, zero stars. <laughs> yes. Exactly what it is. Yeah, no. Watch it. I, if, if she doesn't, if she doesn't cow bolt a dog in the head in Cruella 2. <laughs> I am out. I mean, what is so compelling about Cruella, which is why you really want something of Cruella's level in the starlight barking, is that she's just nasty as hell. That bitch wants to murder dogs. She's happy about it. There's a point in the Disney movie where she like picks up a crowbar and is like, fine, I'll kill the dogs. Like she's just yeah. gonna beat them to death. It's amazing. She's just living her best Swatting life. Around, smoking cigarettes, driving a crazy ass car. Wow. Hannah Blackman, you are yeah I feel like doing it okay (laughs) you are getting fitted or about to get fitted for clothes that clank yes (laughs) you are in the waiting room of Cruella DeVille's business and she is so popular that there is quite a long wait even though you had an appointment such as life when you want to live in high fashion Mm mm-hmm You are going to have several hours in this room, and the only piece of literature sitting on the coffee table is 
the Starlight Barking by Dodie Smith. Knowing what you know, talking to this alternate universe version of yourself, would you advise yourself to pick up the book and read it? I would. Yeah, I would. This book is super weird. I, you know, it, it didn't move as fast as I had wanted, but it would certainly kill that time. It has enough interesting things in it, and I genuinely like Pongo and Mrs. so much that I was <laughs> happy to spend time with them. Another detail I want to raise, because we didn't find a place for it, but while we're doing this, I just want to mention it. Patch decides to be a permanent bachelor because he d- won't pass on his bad patch. That was so upsetting. Oh, the eugenics. Weird. I forgot about doggy eugenics. I don't know how you forgot about the doggy eugenics. Now, Hannah, elaborate on that a little bit for the listeners. That's crazy. Sure. Early in the book, they're talking about, like, what happens with all the puppies. They grow up. Cad Pig becomes prime minister. Lucky gets married to a nice lady dog. Most of the dogs get married and have more puppies. And Patch, and except, I mean, really, Polly's fat, so nobody wants him, I guess. Alas. But Patch, who's a perfectly nice dog, looks at his own patch of dark fur and says, no puppy should ever have this, and decides not to get married or breed. He's going to be a bachelor dog forever. Um, and also, he's Cad Pig's best friend. And I was like, that's a gay dog, actually. That's what I said, too. <laughs> Thank you, Danielle. Yeah, and everybody agrees, which is crazy to me. They're all like, yeah, you shouldn't pass on that path. Well, that's, like, what that's, I, that's a bad idea. That's where I'm getting the doggy eugenics from. Because, like, the fact that they're like, oh, yeah, that patch is unacceptable for a purebred Dalmatian. You are not part of the master Dalmatian race. You must not allow your genes to spread. It's like, no, please, no. And earlier, Cadpig wanted an army of Dalmatians only. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I get that the book was written in 1967 and that, you know, <laughs> it, it, bigotry has, it, our idea of it has changed and, and whatnot. But the idea of like, do not reproduce because you have a minor difference from other people, that's like ancient Rome, not 1967. <laughs> yeah. That's like, that's that's crazy even for them. I totally repressed the dog eugenics because there's just not a sentence I want in my life. <laughs> yeah, I just had to bring it up. It was such a funny little detail. I mean, funny in like a ugh kind of way, not a haha way. That's <laughs> kind but of both. Patch is great. I'm very pro-patch. I think it is telling that when Disney made their animated sequel to 101 Dalmatians, it was about Patch. Patch's big adventure. Okay. Sam. Hmm? <clears throat> you are a good old sheepdog on a farm and your best friend is a cat right imagine this scenario if you would done you <laughs> right you spend most of your time defending your patch of ground you're a general in the dog army of the world and you have a little boy who you take care of as well who's part of the family of your pets this deal is getting worse and, and you worse. like him a lot <laughs> okay well i mean just uh, buy into the scenario okay, okay. For a I, I love the kids. <laughs> I have a lot of responsibility. I'm a sheepdog with no sheep. Got it. Self-proclaimed general. Yep, self-proclaimed yep, general. Self-proclaimed general. Really great well, guy. We all love the general. Um, and, uh, you know, you like to spend time with this little boy who is human and likes to read human books. Would you read to him the Starlight Barking to help entertain and teach him? As a dog? I, I don't think he can read, but... Uh, I would suggest he reads it as, as you know, because I think maybe not for a child. I don't necessarily recommend this for most children. Cause like I said earlier, I think the child would be quite bored with this book at certain points and not a lot of interest happens. That isn't like crazy, 
but you need an adult context, I think, for a lot of that insanity to be entertaining. For most other people who want to just have a breezy little trip through someone's idiosyncratic mind, yes, 100%. Thank you for buying into the scenario and really... Right. I, I think I think the little kid in the book, too young for this, for this book. He's three years old. I don't think he would enjoy this book. I think this is a failure as a as a children's book. I'm totally on board with <laughs> That's that. what I'm I getting think that at. all of its merits are like not not in the vein of of childhood entertainment at all. Danielle. Yes. <laughs> you are serious the dog star. Why? I'm sorry. <laughs> you have made an aggressive overture to the dogs of planet Earth to have them come join you and alleviate your crushing loneliness forever. They turned you down. <laughs> so sad. Would you spend your time reading The Starlight Barking by Dodie Smith? <laughs> yeah, because it would be a reminder of all the poor little puppies I didn't get to take with me. <laughs> oh. Oh, <man>. crushing. <laughs> maybe, I would, maybe I'd learn about myself and realize that maybe I should have approached that in a different manner. It'd be a good learning book, I feel. And you get to visit with all your friends that you made on, on planet Earth. Mm-hmm. Keep you said that like it's good, but it sounds really, really sad. No, it's super like deeply sad. And depressing. <laughs> 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 but I really think as serious, I think Sirius would read this book. Yeah, Sirius would pine, right? Yes. How how about you, Danielle? Would would you recommend this book to a friend? I thought you were going to ask me if I would pine. <laughs> <laughs> when Danielle, Danielle when pine? scorned in any way, do you pine? <laughs> I do not. I move on quickly. <laughs> Great, very healthy. I've seen it many times. <laughs> Ouch. Um, <laughs> so, yes, I would suggest this to other people. Uh, as you, as we have all established, probably mostly adults, because I really think you get the greatest humor out of, out of understanding. Having that background of 101 Dalmatians, especially in your childhood, and then reading the insane sequel of this. Hannah? Yeah, no, I was, you opened your mouth like you had something to say, so I didn't want to jump on your toes. Yeah, It was your okay. name. Yeah, okay, great. Um, wonderful. Andrew Overbee. Hi. Oh, I got one for you. Him. Oh, Sam, oh, go, go for Sam, it. Go, go for it. Yes, yes. Andrew, as Hi. Patch, the lonely bachelor dog, forever uh-huh. solo in your life, sitting at home, <laughs> looking at play dog, imagining what you could have, but finding no solace, would you read this book and be reminded of your happier brothers and sisters and what you don't have, or would you find it too much? As a voluntary celibate, (laughs) I would read this book because it is entertaining above quality if that makes sense (laughs) it's like this thing is like pure if you have any investment in the story of 101 dalmatians which i also haven't read but of course like media wise culture wise i'm i'm tapped into this thing if you have any interest in that property this book is just nuts and it's breezy and i would definitely recommend it to someone i would especially recommend the experience of the four-hour audiobook very breezy very much read like a bedtime story just like you know i feel like i feel like the person reading it to me is like on a children's television show you know 
with like 15 children crowded around being like and then this happened oh wow it's it it, it was a it was a really nice experience uh and so yeah that the mixture of that and it just being totally batshit insane uh is a definite recommend for me so you would put it on every night as you cry yourself to sleep listening to it over and over again <laughs> Right. Yeah. Totally. Got it. I would, I would, I would also rub... like you to consider the other version of Bachelorhood, where you smoke a pipe on the porch and think like, "This is good." I mean, I'm not here to tell Patch <laughs> how to live his best life. That's totally true. <laughs> yeah, I I almost feel like there must be details of this insane book we haven't touched on. There's so many weird reveals, but um, we barely talked about the flying yeah, tractor. Was... Like, yeah, obviously we skipped a bunch of stuff. Oh. Yeah, they, they 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 make the one of the tractors swoosh, and uh, it flies. Because why not? <laughs> because there's a little kid. They had to get him to Downing Street, yeah. and the kid couldn't From swoosh. Right, and, and by they you mean the author had to get him to Downing Street. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, and I I also really um love the the idea that right at the end, because the dog star has turned down. Or has been turned down. He's like, "All right, taking all your magic powers away," and they almost lose Roly Poly because he gets like stranded. They're like, "Well, he can't swoosh back now because we said no." Kind of the equivalent of like, you know, your 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 ex spouse being like, "I have the children. It's not kidnapping, but I'm also not going to tell you where." <laughs> so I have a question. I didn't realize until you, we mentioned the little kid again. Yeah. As an honorary dog, would he have gone with the dogs to Sirius? And would his parents have been like, oh, our child that does not exist anymore? Like, I think so. What he kind of a horror story is that? Same with the two cats who didn't want to go and didn't want to spend that much time with that many dogs. Uh, fair point. <laughs> this honorary dog thing is a worse deal every day. How come they couldn't <laughs> swoosh, swoosh the honorary dogs? Seems unfair. Classism. Yeah. Second class dog citizens. <laughs> There's something sinister running through the themes of this book. At least if you're having fun with it. Sam, <laughs> Sam and Danielle. The the podcast is Book Retorts. Uh, our listeners, if they have enjoyed this, should definitely check out your episodes on the same book. But what else should they check out? What's like an episode you're really, you, you think really, really steams Ooh, night of the crabs yeah no the crabs is really what good. is that <laughs> danielle please it's, a, <laughs> it's an old pulp fiction book um about a set in wales i think where a guy and his girlfriend go on a a trip to an island and giant crabs come out of the sea and attack the small town and they have to figure out what why there are giant crabs coming out of the sea is there a why um, yes, it's a whole series. There's something, I don't know how many books were in that series. Too we many. We haven't done the whole series. Too many. <laughs> 17 wow. books or something in the series. Yeah. And they're all about giant crab attacks? Yeah. And yeah. they, like, I progressively, I think, probably go into cities and, like, take over. I, I should say, not to keep dipping back into the starlight barking, but one of my favorite <laughs> things about it is that there's, like, this feeling that I get with a lot of movies these days where a movie that's built on a central mystery, you'll kind of feel like, oh, this is the type of movie that doesn't give an answer, right? Like, that's just like sort of a, I think a good example is like Mom and Dad, the Nicolas Cage movie from like five years ago, where the premise is like, 
parents suddenly want to kill all their children. <laughs> uh, it's just like an instinctual shift. And you can feel pretty early on. The movie's not going to tell you why. It's just like, wouldn't this be crazy? I was bowled <laughs> over by the fact that the starlight barking did so much hand-waving early on. <laughs> magic flying, magic telekinesis. And they were like, oh, we're going to tell you why this bullshit is happening. <laughs> you better believe you're going to know. Yeah, Night of the Crabs. Very satisfying. Definitely one of our... Uh, loopier episodes i really enjoyed uh hearing about that book from danielle <laughs> that's because we recorded it i had just broken my wrist yep. and literally just oh broken God. it and sam was like it was like nine o'clock ten o'clock at night or something in his time after a very we long like day recording this. <laughs> it was crazy it was uh Got progressively crazier <laughs> not not like it was, actually i mean given the quality that we should break limbs more often and record <laughs> I think that reading an entire book for a podcast episode is a prohibitive way to make a podcast. I don't know about <laughs> you. Might have found a more prohibitive way. Uh, I mean, if you think we, we've even done something a little bit crazier with um, a more more recent series. Now we're in the middle of um, Dan Simmons' Hyperion book, uh, which mm-hmm. is about as far away from Night of the Crabs as the Starlight Barking <laughs> is from 101 Dalmatians <laughs> in terms of it being a crazy bit of sci-fi space opera and. Um, I have made the poor decision to do the four books in this series over the next months, years. I don't know. This is my life now. <laughs> We're alternating it with my episodes, so it'll be fine. So he gets a break every other week. Yeah, and boy, do I right. need it. <laughs> Look, sometimes you make a commitment to yourself, and very quickly you realize this was a mistake. I have to watch so many terrible movies or read so many terrible things. And what's important is that you push through. Mm-hmm. You know, you keep going. <laughs> wow. You fulfill your promise to yourself. I really so. think that our authorized hosting might be some sort of codependent relationship. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like making you do all this, read all these random terrible books, and you're like, but it's important to do that. And I, I love the experience, and it's enriching my life. I can't <laughs> wait to read Resident <laughs> Evil, the final chapter, which I just put in my suitcase. Can't sure. Wait. And for the listener, Will have been out months ago. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to hear that one. <laughs> to our listeners who I, who just got name checked, congratulations, you got mentioned unauthorized. Uh, please, you know, rate, rate our podcast, review it, subscribe to it. If you're listening to authorized and you're not subscribed, I just don't know. I don't know, like, what led you there. We're not, you know, we're not popping up as, like, you know, recommended podcasts. How'd yes. you get here? By the time this episode comes out, we'll be reaching the yeah, stars. We'll be, you know? we'll be living large. Uh, <laughs> Sam and Danielle, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Course, You're a wonderful guest. Oh, gosh. Our pleasure. Any excuse to discuss the insanity of this book and the weird and unnecessary implications <laughs> of any book, really. I just, it is a joy to find people that are willing to go this in depth into such nonsense with me. Absolutely. It's it's part of, I think, both of our mission statements, both of our podcasts. Mm. So, uh, listeners, of course, you are digesting a quick uh, bit of digestion because it is a crumb. You're digesting a crumb. Won't take too long. Uh, and so please do follow the crumbs. And here is your next crumb and once again everyone's just looking at me it's nothing seems to be happening but to the listener there'll be music playing underneath what i'm saying what is this from is it a movie that we're gonna cover 
Is it some other form of media that we're going to cover? Uh, is it, are we doing an episode just on a music album? And if so, that must be a terrible band, right? Because this doesn't sound like a song that would play on the radio. All right, good night. I think it's probably going to be Indiana Jones. Oh. oh okay. Which one? The, Crystal the Skull? Jones Crumb. No, the the young Indiana Jones TV oh, series. Oh, I love that series. Yeah. yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> okay, this is Overby cutting in from the present again. Uh, because of my scheduling mishap, the Indiana Jones TV show Crumb won't be the next Crumb. In fact, it'll be ranking the novelizations. And I don't know how I would leave a crumb for that one because there's no text I could be like oh boy it smells in here like it's like rank I don't know uh, I don't see a great way forward for Hansel and Gretling the ranking episode at this point I'm just talking a lot because I think I can't play the Indiana Jones theme song audio on its own for like very long at all without some algorithm picking it up and going they're committing a crime stop them or whatever the heck uh so i just continue to talk and i think uh if i go on for about 30 more seconds that the song will just suddenly cut off and then the theme song will pop up which sounds really nice uh i hope you're all doing well i hope you enjoyed the crumb the starlight barking Uh, It was fun for me to listen back to since this is like a five-month-old episode. Okay, be well. I think we're in the clear.